Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And you're an audience. Whoa! That's right. For those listening at home, this is our first ever live show, and we're excited to be at Cosumnes River College here in beautiful Sacramento, California, as part of Women's History Month 2019. Since we're in California, and it's Women's History Month, and you're, some of you are in the anthropology department... Let's spend some time talking about a specific person that had an impact on all of those things. Let's head to the 19th century CE, shall we? Let's. So today's story is dedicated to Helen Hunt Jackson, a writer and social activist who spent most of her adult life in the wee baby state of California until her death in 1885. So um, quick show of hands. How many of you have heard of Helen Hunt Jackson before you saw it on the poster? Nope. Cool. Zero people. Yep. And um, there might be a reason why. And I'm going to read to you what that reason is from uh, Ruth O'Dell's 1939 biography of Helen Hunt Jackson. What appears to be a singular neglect by biographers of so significant a figure as Helen Hunt Jackson, H.H., author of Ramona and A Century of Dishonor, and one of the best-known writers of her era, is easily explained. During her lifetime, she was averse to publicity and, before her death, requested that if a life of hers had to be written, it should only be by no one but Mr. Hamilton W. Maybe. Members of her family, respecting her wishes, discouraged all attempts at a biography. Mr. Maybe died without writing one. In consequence, only short sketches or books treating her California period have appeared, and these, for the most part, are inaccurate and contradictory. So... She kind of meant that to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, too bad. Let's change that. Uh, Helen's story begins in 1830 when Professor Nathan Welby Fisk and his wife Deborah welcomed their baby daughter into the world in Amherst, Massachusetts. Theirs must have been a scholarly household, as Dad was a professor of languages. I guess just all languages of, all in of general, them, all yeah. of them. And Mom noticed Helen's independent streak pretty early on, describing her as quite inclined to question everything. The Bible, she says, does not feel as if it were true. So that was a quote from um, a biographer. Well, yeah. it was from her mom. Well, it was a quote the biographer from her, quoted her mom. Yeah. Um, young Helen had an on-again, off-again relationship with formal education and spent time at a series of boarding schools and ultimately was well-educated for an American woman of the mid-19th century. In addition to usual like finishing school subjects like how to get a husband or set a table, Helen also learned math, science, and philosophy. Which won't get you a husband. Mm -mm. Helen married in 1852, and her husband's career as a military officer meant frequent relocation for both of them, and uh, for her, a chance to live at the artist colony of Newport, Rhode Island, and in Washington, D.C., where she met a number of the leading writers and publishers of her day. Now, before you think that everything was coming up, Helen, I'm sorry to say that the next decade brought a lot of personal tragedy for her, but ultimately led her to the point at which she enters the dirt's territory. 
Both of her children died, one in infancy and one as a young child. Um, and unfortunately, her husband was killed in a military accident in 1863. And so, as an escape from her grief and possible source of income, Helen Hunt threw herself into writing. Not that Helen Hunt. Different Helen Hunt. She tapped her literary contacts, and in 1865, she was published for the first time. Two poems in the New York Evening Post. Her first poetry collection, Verses, appeared in 1870, followed by a prose collection, Bits of Travel, in 1873. Now, by literary contacts, I think you mean the patron saint of sad sex, Emily Dickinson. That is who I mean. So, a much more famous person. Uh, they were born two months apart in Amherst. Like, if this were a thing in 1830, their moms could have gone to the same prenatal yoga classes. Like, they were, but they didn't know each other growing up. It wasn't until this period when uh, Helen got involved in her own poetry that they became friends and they struck up a friendship that lasted for the rest of their lives. Well, yeah, I guess it became kind of one-sided there near the end. <laughs> So, speaking of that, um, Emily Dickinson once wrote to Helen's husband saying, Helen of Troy will die, but Helen of Colorado, never. And also, um, <laughs> it should be noted that for someone you've not heard of before today, uh, Helen Hunt Jackson played a pretty significant role in making Emily Dickinson famous. Um, here's a snippet from uh, the materials put out by the Emily Dickinson Museum. Jackson did not understand Dickinson's reluctance to publish since, she argued, the poet had such remarkable verse to share. Writing out of frustration in 1884, she told Dickinson, it is cruel and wrong to your day and generation that you will not give them light. I do not think that we have a right to withhold from the world a word or a thought any more than a deed which might help a single soul. Jackson even offered to be Dickinson's literary executor, but Jackson died before the poet did, making such a possibility if Dickinson had even wished to accept it moot. I, I just want to jump in and add that Emily Dickinson is famous for being a recluse, essentially, and for um, not really wanting to talk to people. And so the idea that she didn't want her poems published is, is very much in line with that. Yeah. And um, Helen Hunt Jackson may have had a hand in getting her poems published in the first place. So it's curious to this podcaster that someone so keen as to keen to be forgotten as Helen seemed to be at the end of her life, as I read in that foreword, uh, what with all the, the burning papers and requesting that nobody but this guy maybe write a biography of her, um, she would be so pushy with her friend regarding pub publishing, possibly to the point of publishing her poetry without her consent. Yeah. The first poems of Emily Dickinson's that appeared in print may have been put there by, by our girl Helen. Uh, but she clearly saw something special in her friend Emily's writing, but she herself also had the skills to pay the bills. She did, for sure. She was a talented writer, but when she launched her literary career, she found quick success after years of cultivating contacts and getting a sense of the size and desires of the female reader's market. Once she had established her popularity, she added short stories, children's stories, and novels published under several pseudonyms, but most often simply H H. What was it that that children's book I told you she wrote was? It's like the, the naughtiest, naughtiest thing, thing of my life. It's like the naughtiest thing I did. And I was like, ooh. No, but it's a kid's book. But there's also A Christmas Tree for Cats. Those are her children's titles. Amazon.com. <laughs> Not sponsored. Um, in the 1870s, she started branching out into travel writing. Hunt's early travel sketches were about her excursions into quaint New England and European byways, 
Sounds nice. Then in 1872, a trip by transcontinental railroad from New York City to San Francisco gave her material for essays collected in Bits of Travel at Home, which again was published in 1878. It was the sequel to Bits of Travel. Oh, right. I guess. At home. Huh. When in 1873, after a period of ill health, Hunt returned to the West to try its restorative powers, she went to the new town of Colorado Springs, where in 1875 she married William Sharpless Jackson, a banker and railroad executive. For the rest of her life, she called Colorado Springs home, but made many trips back east to maintain contact with publishers and other authors and regular journeys to California, which attracted her for its history as well as its beauty. In 1879, while visiting in Boston, she attended a reception for representatives of the Ponca and Omaha Indian tribes who were touring the East in an attempt to arouse public indignation over the confiscation of their tribal lands by the U.S. government. At this reception, she heard the Ponca chieftain Standing Bear give an impassioned account of the sufferings of the Plains Indians who were being dispossessed by the westward expansion of the U.S. territories. Chief Standing Bear asked that the Poncas be allowed to return to their ancestral lands in the Black Hills of Dakota. Um, for context, there was a gold rush happening, and the federal government, who wanted that gold, had removed some of the Poncas in midwinter and moved them into Nebraska, and now they were starving, sick, and miserable, and Standing Bear was trying to solicit money to help them, or at least get people to notice. And he's the he's the, the gentleman that had the, the I am a man speech that's very... Um, it's something that... It's attributed to him. It's unclear whether he actually gave the speech, but it's imploring people to see Native Americans as, as humans. And in the show notes, um, I found the, the Library of the U.S. Courts, the 8th District. They have a whole piece on the court ruling um, that stated that the, the court ruled he was a person. And so that's, a, that's sig- unfortunately extremely significant. Um, and so we'll include that in the show notes so you can read about that and uh, learn more about his work and, um, and so his, his community and sort of the, the fate not only of him but other members of his family that, that took on the, the U.S. system. Yeah, so we'll we'll include that for you guys. Yeah, and so he was in Boston making the speech, trying to get people to to notice what was happening to the Plains Indians, and Helen noticed. Um, Jackson had never before shown interest in reform movements, nor had her experiences in the West sparked any concern for Indian rights, but suddenly she was transformed. She wrote to a friend that she had become what she had previously considered, quote, the most odious thing in the world, a woman with a hobby. Jackson vowed to write a book that would expose the entire story of government maltreatment. She buried herself in library books, and one thing led to another, and she found herself championing the causes of not just the Poncas, but the Utes, Sioux, and other Plains Indian tribes threatened by federally mandated removal. And so, it begins. Here we go. Her dedication to the cause of justice for Indian tribes resulted in a well-researched expose of Indian mistreatment published in 1881 as A Century of Dishonor. The government commissioned report on the conditions and needs of the Mission Indians with Abbott Kinney, which in 1883, mm-hmm. and Ramona, 1884, one of the most popular novels of its day, and a series of essays on the California Mission Indians collected in her in something that was published posthumously in 1902 called Glimpses of California and the Missions, which is really a bait and switch of a of a title mm. because it'd be like this one's nice oh, and then you pick and it up and you're like oh no gosh yep um and so we're going to talk about a couple of her books 
specifically two of her books, um, starting with A Century of Dishonor. Um, it was written like a legal document, and and in doing so, Helen Hunt Jackson's A Century of Dishonor systematically breaks down the issue of land ownership in the United States and also presents a tribe-by-tribe breakdown of the treaties made by the government with the Delaware, the Cheyenne, the Nez Perce, the Sioux, the Poncas, the Winnebago's, and the Cherokee. In each case, she summarizes every single article of every single treaty, followed by an account of exactly how the federal government broke or dishonored that treaty. Just the research that went into this is like, oh, wow. And um, the final chapter is titled Massacres of Indians by Whites, in all caps, uh, which should give you a pretty good idea of what that's about. Uh, Specifically, it's, it's not just one, it's three accounts of mass killings of Native groups and the degree to which they were indeed unprovoked or for the reasons stated were just absolutely bad, unjustifiable. Hmm. Um, and so the book was the culmination of seven months' worth of research into government reports and court cases. So I think she was really understating it when she said she was a woman with a hobby because um, it's much more than a hobby went into this. No, it became her life's yeah. work. Yeah, and after it was published, Jackson remained a tireless and vocal advocate for Native American land rights. Um, she sent approximately, conservatively, one zillion letters to politicians, newspaper editors, publishers, and like, rich society folk, uh, promoting her book and her cause. Uh, she sent a copy of her book to President Chester A. Arthur and every single member of Congress out of her own pocket. She really wanted him to read that so book. So read this book. You've got no excuse. Um, but she wanted to do more. She wanted to write a book that would seize the public consciousness the way that she had been affected by Standing Bear's speech. She was she was so moved by this that she wanted to do something to move those that hadn't been present for it. So she wrote Ramona. Not to be confused with uh, Beverly Cleary's opus of the same name. When... Helen Hunt Jackson's Ramona was published in November 1884, the effects of the Mexican-American War were still resonating in the pueblos. Native American and Mexican residents, treated as second-class citizens, were viewed as remnants of a faded past by the newly arrived residents from the East Coast. Jackson wrote the novel partly in an effort to bring awareness to the plight of Mexicans and Native Americans in California, a subject that she had previously explored in A Century of Dishonor. She wanted her book to have the same impact on Native Americans as the book Uncle Tom's Cabin has had had for black slaves. What resonated with readers, however, was not its intended political commentary, but the idyllic romance between two of its characters, Ramona, the daughter of a ranchero, and Alessandro, a Gabrielino Indian. Reputedly based on um, Helen Hunt Jackson's visit on one of her visits to California. She visited a place called Rancho Camulos, which is in Peru, California, which is a little bit northwest of Los Angeles. Um, the world portrayed by the novel was not based on factual events, but was instead a product of Jackson's own romantic and biased vision of the California lifestyle. Now, you might have noticed I said California there, and I'm not having vowel troubles. Californio is a term for a native of California who is a descendant of the Spanish-speaking communities that have existed in the area since Spanish colonization. This person is likely of mixed Spanish and indigenous Californian heritage. Jackson was trying to emphasize the humanity of these people because, oh my God, they're real, actual human beings. But the effect was one of romanticization. 
As a result, the novel had an almost opposite effect than had been intended by the author. Rather than shedding light on then-contemporary issues, the novel stoked nostalgia for the bygone era of adobe missions, ranchos, handsome caballeros, and fierce brown-eyed senoritas, becoming an instant classic for those who longed for a new life in the newly acquired landscape of the Southwest. And, you know, that um, nostalgia was possibly, was probably, almost definitely for a place that didn't exist ever. And so it's both a sort of whitewashing of the past and a nostalgia for something that wasn't real. Um, Helen's career ended hardly a year later. Um, and she, despite her, her best efforts, she was eulogized in newspapers from coast to coast. Publishers rushed to produce reprints and, and new collections of her work. Um, and, and, Helen Hunt Jackson experienced a surge of posthumous fame. Ramona became the impetus for the romanticization of Southern California history. Uh, for, a, for a time, a body of literature about Ramona country flourished, and various sites from the book became tourist attractions. This is when tourism was pretty new, um, especially in this, this part well, of the country. Because they just built the railroad, and people were like, we can go where? We can go to Ramona country. Wow. Um, and... So since then, it's gone through over 300 printings and transformations into stage plays, movies, and pageants. Uh, when her nonfiction writings didn't initiate the types of reforms that Jackson thought they deserved and that she sought, uh, she said of Ramona, quote, I'm going to write a novel in which will be set forth some Indian experiences in a way to move people's hearts. People will read a novel when they will not read serious books. Um, critics and readers responded positively, but Jackson was dismayed by the focus of the reviews. Quote, not one word for the Indians. I put my heart and soul in the book for them. It is a dead failure. Um, instead of recognizing Jackson's intent and maybe acting on it, readers were captivated by the charm of, a of the Southern California setting and a romance between what they considered to be a half-breed girl raised by an aristocratic Spanish family and an Indian forced off his tribal lands by white encroachers. Everybody missed the point. Yep. And now we're going to make the point by taking a moment to talk about what she was trying to say, what was actually happening at this time with Native American groups. Yes, the U.S. federal government was a big part of this forced relocation, but the mistreatment of Native American groups by government and colonial powers was by no means a new phenomenon in the 1800s. So this is pulled from a recent paper by Benjamin Madley in Pacific Historical Review, and it looks at the California missions as this country's earliest form of mass incarceration. So colonial governments, especially the Spanish, if we're talking about the west coast of the U.S., had an established habit of capturing, holding, and transporting Native Americans against their will. In 1493, Christopher Columbus sailed back to Spain with around a dozen Arawak people taken from Caribbean islands. This was basically to show his royal patrons, oh, hey, look at all these slaves we could sell. And in 1495, Columbus sold 550 Arawaks from what was then Hispaniola, which is now um, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And um, sidebar, longtime listeners of The Dirt will know from our Columbus Day special, in which we talked about the Taino, um, he contravened orders from, the, not that I'm coming here to like bat for the Spanish Empire, but he, they said, do not capture these people. Right. He brought those Arawak Indians to Spain and it was like, look, ah, slaves. And they were like, no, 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 no. He wrote, don't do he that. was like, what if we, we enslaved people? And the queen was like, nah, that's not, let's pass on that. And he's like, oh, I did it. 
I didn't hear you over the sound of and me so that's something. People. So that's a shame. Yep. Um, but but that's that's a little callback to to our episode last October in which we talked about the Taino communities and who um, exist even today. Yes. So check that out at thedirtpod.com. Um, so that was a rough start for for Spain New World relations. Um, but for the next 200 years or so, Spain paid relatively little attention to the Americas. But then, in 1769, worried that Britain, the Netherlands, and Russia would get the jump on their U.S. territories, especially California, Spain began colonizing the region. So this is a map of um, the traditional indigenous communities and their ancestral lands, and then superimposed on that is the locations of Spanish missions and forts. And this is a map pulled from Madley's article for the Pacific Historical Review. Mm -hmm. Um, Spanish California slowly became a kind of penal colony. Spaniards facing a profound immigrant shortage forcibly contained California Indians, in part to secure labor. As early as 1780, California Governor uh, Felipe de de Neve? Felipe de Neve, sure critiqued California missions, describing, quote, the Indians' fate as worse than that of slaves, end quote. Um, Unsurprisingly, thousands of California Indians fled the missions as refugees. Their motives varied um, as, as, so their motives varied as the interrogations of a dozen captured after fleeing Mission San Francisco, you you may have heard of it, um, in 1797 make clear content warning. Yes, content warning, violence, and um, mistreatment of humans. Yeah, like, Human rights violations. Yep. Sorry. Um, Tiburcio had suffered five whippings for weeping when his wife and child died. Uh, Magin had endured the stocks while sick. Tarazon had visited home and stayed there. Claudio had been, quote, beaten with a stick and forced to work when ill, end quote. Jose Manuel had been bludgeoned. Liberado, quote, ran away to escape dying of hunger as his mother, two brothers, and three nephews had done, end quote. And a man named Otolon had been, quote, flogged for not caring for his wife after she had sinned with the vaquero. Yep. So, although often motivated by fear of violence or by individual desperation, quote, fleeing from the missions became a collective expression of rebellion, end quote, according to uh, historian George Harwood Phillips. Mexico won independence from Spain in 1821 and made all um, indigenous persons citizens, creating the basis for the legal emancipation of California mission Indians under Mexican law. In 1826, California Governor Jose Maria de Echeandia um, allowed potentially self-supporting and married or adult California mission Indians to request emancipation, quote, provided they had been Christians from childhood or for 15 years, end quote. Um, California's missions took a terrible toll on indigenous lives. It was... Yep to say the least. Across the California missions, one in three infants did not live to see a first birthday. So that's a higher infant mortality rate than not in the the missions. Four in 10 Indian children who survived their first year perished before their fifth, and between 10 and 20% of adults died each year. Spanish and Mexican officials knew about the death toll. Yet they maintained and expanded the mission system and its regime of spatial confinement for decades. By December 1834, Franciscans had reportedly baptized some 89,800 California Indians and buried some 66,100. Those are some numbers. Yeah. But today's story is specifically about Helen Hunt Jackson, so let's step back and return to her. 
From the publication of A Century of Dishonor onward, through her most passionate advocacy on behalf of indigenous Americans, Helen was gravely sick. She tried to conceal the extent of her illness from those around her, but that became more difficult when she lost 45 pounds in seven weeks in the spring of 1885. And about 18 months before that, she fell down the stairs and broke her hip. Yeah, so while she was in recovery, she realized that she there was wasn't getting else better. Going yeah. On. yeah. Um, it wasn't revealed until later, after the spring of 1885, that she was living with cancer through this period. One of the last conscious actions she took before the doctors administered morphine, right up there with sending for her husband, was writing a letter to the president. So this is from August 8th, 1885, to Grover Cleveland, who had succeeded Chester Arthur. Dear Sir, from my deathbed, I send you a message of heartfelt thanks for what you have already done for the Indians. I ask you to read my Century of Dishonor. I am dying happier for the belief I have that it is your hand that is destined to strike the first steady blow toward lifting this burden of infamy from our country and righting the wrongs of the Indian race. With respect and gratitude, Helen Jackson. Ten days later, Helen Hunt Jackson was dead. Despite the hopeful tone of her letter to President Cleveland, Helen often expressed regret at the end of her life that she hadn't started her writing career soon enough and hadn't begun to work on behalf of indigenous Americans early enough. These feelings came through in her poetry as well, seen in stanzas from two of her last poems. I'm going to quote from those. The first one is a poem called The Song He Never Wrote. Why did I halt and weakly tremble, even in heaven the memory smote, Fool to be dumb and to dissemble, alas, for the song I never wrote. And then um, a poem titled, A Last Prayer. It was kind of a theme there. Yep. There. Mm, sure was. Father, I scarcely dare to pray, so clear I see, now it is done, that I have wasted half my day and left my work but just begun. Yeah, so at the end of her life, um, Helen believed that her only surviving works would be A Century of Dishonor. And Ramona. Which we're giving which, away after the show. Uh, which, given her reception to Ramona's reception, uh, was probably a huge bummer for her. Um, and according to WorldCat, which is uh, a library catalog that database. aggregates catalogs of academic libraries all over the world, um, a century of dishonor, a sketch of the United States government's dealings with some Indian tribes, That's full, a full title, full title. Um, has been published in 152 editions between the most recent of which being in 2015 um, and that's just in English and it's held in 4,776 libraries worldwide so not it, bad it, yeah not bad more books than I got and then yeah, definitely and then Ramona a story um, has 344 editions published most recently in 2016 in 11 languages and held by 5,527 libraries worldwide. Yeah, and keep in mind that at the time that it was published, it was one of the most popular fiction yeah. books around. I mean, it started a, a tourist the tourism craze. They yeah. wanted to go to Ramona country. Yeah. And then they got there and they're like, oof, yikes. Um, overall, she has to her name 551 works in 2,165 publications in 10 languages and... 35,711 library holdings. So we didn't touch on it here much, but her essays and travel writing were also a total game changer. Um, she played a significant role in sparking tourism to California, especially Southern California. Um, and not only did she, and so she wrote about everything, and so not only did she travel out west, but she fell in love and she got married and she made a home there and wrote all about it, which is like, Sounds a lot like a Reconstruction era, like pioneer woman blog. Like that's like what Reed Drummond did. 
So while the majority of her books, essays, and poems have fallen into a relative obscurity, Helen Hunt Jackson's advocacy blazed a trail for future reformers and really white allies for indigenous American communities. And if you'll pardon the a bit of editorializing on my part, which is another thing that happens a lot in the episodes that gets edited out later. Um, her story is really one that flies in the face of arguments that people have that are like, oh, it was a different time. And like they, when you have like horrible things happening and it's like, oh, that's just the way things were. It was a different time. Um, and that's just what life was like then. Um, because it was possible to live in that time in those social conditions and recognize that what the United States government was doing was absolutely reprehensible. Um, she, when she found out what was going, she just like, it, it basically seems like she was going out with friends and she's like, Oh, what are we doing tonight? Well, they're going to go see some, some natives. And they went and this guy talks about like his personal experience and, and his speaks, people speaks on behalf of his community. And she's like, are you hearing this? And um, she wasn't about to stand by and go, Oh my goodness, that's awful. Like she used the tools in her toolbox and she did something like she had a literary career at this point, And she was mostly writing about like, Oh, Colorado Springs. Oh, so nice. But like, she shouldn't be forgotten for that. Like when native leaders and thinkers like Chief Standing Bear advocated for themselves, people like Helen Hunt Jackson listened and they leveraged their relative privilege. In her case, she had the ear of editors in New York and in DC, and she had the attention of lawmakers who began to find it more difficult to ignore the atrocities that were happening on their watch. Like if nobody knew about it, then nobody could hold them accountable for it. Uh, but Nobody that they would listen to knew about it. Nobody would. And so um, the final years of her life included important first steps towards calling out U.S. government failings and mistreatment. Like, a century of dishonor was one of the first times that somebody said, like, the U.S. government said they would do this, and then they did the opposite of that, which is horrible. And, and the fact that it's written like a legal treatise lends it that much more weight. Yeah, because it's a serious book. So, you know, she said she wanted to write Ramona because people, people were probably like, this is dense and so she wrote Ramona and everyone's like oh so fun and so like, like that's not what I want yeah and unfortunately she couldn't find a happy medium um so she made space for other organizations that were consistent of white allies um like the Indian Rights Association and the Women's National Indian Association and both of those were very popular and so they were um analogous to like the abolitionist societies that that have that existed um, through the 18th and 19th centuries where it's just like people who are raising funds and, and things things like the people who just like, want to do something um, that are far removed from the, the actual space where things are happening. Um, and if she had been able to continue her work after Ramona backfired on her, um, she... I would like, I think that she would have learned from that experience and given and, and tried to give indigenous Americans a platform to speak for themselves because she was speaking for them, which didn't work out so well. Um, and, and speak for themselves and on their own terms. And so that's a very radical idea, especially, I mean, still, but, uh, given the progress she made in her life, if you think about the amount of time from her first learning of this, this situation happening in her country to doing all of this seven months yeah like if she had if she had more time like I wouldn't put it past our girl to like have actually been like a really great ally yeah and that is the story of Helen Hunt Jackson so thank you all very, very much for listening, and thank you to Kasumnas River College Women's History Month for, for having us. 
We'll be back in your ears soon. You can put us there via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choosing. You can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can see all of those together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And if you have thoughts, questions, you want to know more, you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We love you. Bye. Bye. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.